You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 28th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. It was 1986, and I'm sure we all remember exactly where we were at the moment the space shuttle Challenger broke apart after after liftoff. Was it on the 28th? It was on the 28th, yep. Actually, I do not remember where I was. I remember exactly where I was. was Yeah, me too. Sophomore year in high school. I was five. uh, Junior year in high school, my computer lab, and the announcement came over the intercom, and we just all ran to a television set to see what was going on. It It was... yeah, it's one of the seminal moments uh, for me, certainly. It hit me pretty I think hard. we talked about this, actually, on the show before, because I remember recounting that I was actually at, at Hopkins at the time, at Johns Hopkins, and I was online to sign a document which was going to go up in the next space shuttle because the Hopkins was sending up the Hopkins Ultraviolet Telescope, which then, got, of course, got delayed by a year or two because of, because of the shuttle disaster. Well, we have a great interview with Tim Minchin coming up later in the show, but first let's get to some news items. This is a study recently published that shows that um, high fructose corn syrup is contaminated with mercury. Now, this is a study that was published by the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, and what they did was look at various food items, some off the shelf, and uh, sent them to various labs to test for their mercury content. And they found that about a third of products containing high fructose corn syrup had detectable levels of mercury. And they put out you know, press releases uh, warning about this. I, I was looking around uh, the Internet to see what the chatter was about it. And all the links I found just about were from fairly either credulous or pro-alternative medicine or flagrant conspiracy-mongering sites uh, that just loved this news for for whatever reason. I heard Jeremy Piven almost died from ketchup poisoning. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Jeremy. It was actually challenging for me to dig up real information. So one thing that uh, that the press release didn't talk about was how much mercury are we talking about? Just because it's detectable doesn't mean that the, the quantities involved are significant. Right. But if you go to the, the website of the, uh, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, they, there you can get the full study with the table that has the actual amounts. And the, the amounts of mercury are between 30 and 350 parts per trillion. That's trillion with a T. And again, in about a third of the products that they tested, the other two-thirds had, had no detectable levels of mercury. Now, there seemed to me to be a lot of fear-mongering around this. And, and again, I was trying to put this into some context. What, what does this actually mean? What kind of health risk does this present? And again, the vast majority of the sites really didn't make any attempt to put this into any kind of context. So one thing that's certainly true is that mercury is a toxin, right? That is the thing that is not under debate. Nobody's saying that mercury itself is safe. And there is a... Um, a, a, a pretty broad effort to minimize human exposure to mercury. We're all on the same page when it comes to that. But in terms of what individual things and how much of a risk do they present in terms of their mercury content, what I found with this high fructose corn syrup news story was 
a lot of unsubstantiated fear-mongering without really digging deep into the details to see what kind of threat this actually presents. So here's a couple of things to put this into context. Uh, first of all, again, the amounts that we're talking about, 30 to 350 parts per trillion, that is far below what is necessary to cause levels that are considered to be unhealthy. So the EPA and the FDA has their safe exposure levels. One estimate I saw was that you would have to eat 100 pounds of ketchup every day (laughs) to get to the EPA safety levels. I could do that. (laughs) You could do that 100 pounds every day. So that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot of ketchup. I could do it on a veggie burger. The other thing to keep in mind is that there's mercury in the water and in the soil and in breast milk and in lots of things. There's you could detect this range of level of mercury. Yeah, but is that naturally occurring? Like, what? How does it get there? Uh, In in the soil and the air and whatnot. Yeah. Well, there's a certain amount of mercury is naturally occurring in that it just exists in the environment. Certainly, in uh, industrialized parts of the world, a certain amount of the mercury is a product of industrialization. And that's the part that we can do something about and that there have been a lot of efforts you know, by the Environmental Protection Agency and other groups to, to, to do that, to minimize human exposure to mercury through industry. But in terms of the high fructose corn syrup, it seems as if that in the processing of these products, in order to balance the pH – um, you know, you have to add acids and bases to things in order to to balance the pH. That one of these processes included a uh, a mercury-based filter, the so-called mercury cell technology, and it's possible that mercury could contaminate food that was processed this way. So that's what they're thinking is how it got into into there. So that would be an industrial, you know, exposure to mercury, not not naturally occurring. However, uh, the industry. Spokesmen have said that that technology was phased out several years ago and that the the press release included data from products that were four years old prior previous to the mercury cell technology being replaced by newer technology that has no mercury in it. So, yeah, but, four, you know, Steve, four years is really not that long of a time. I mean, if we were all on average consuming 12 teaspoons of high fructose corn syrup a day, up to four years ago, that was a real issue. But the point of that, Jay, was that the problem has already largely been fixed. You said they, these were mercury filters, Steve? Yeah, the mer- this mercury cell technology was, was used in the processing. Yeah, because, Jay, now they're using the uh, arsenic cell technology. So, <laughs> so, I mean, Jay, you're right in that, yeah, that you know, this was a, a, an exposure up until four years ago. But it's an exposure at this level, which seems to be like the background level in the environment, not necessarily uh, enough to, to exceed this rather generous safety levels. You know, the, the EPA has a, has a safety buffer of what they will consider a safe exposure level, and it, this doesn't even get up to that. So it's not clear. Here's the bottom line. It's not clear is if this level of mercury poses a risk or not. And it probably doesn't, given the low levels that we're talking about here. One thing the study did not do was detect whether the mercury was ethylmercury or methylmercury. Methylmercury is much more toxic, much more toxic than ethylmercury. If some of the mercury that they're measuring is ethylmercury, that would reduce the potential toxicity much further, in fact. However, a spokesman from this group said that they, they claim there are still four plants open, one in Georgia, one in t- Tennessee, Ohio, and West Virginia, that are still using the mercury cell technology. 
I couldn't find any information to confirm that either way. So it may be that most of the plants have switched over, but there may be a few left that are still using it. But it sounds like this is something that's already being phased out because, again, just generically trying to limit human exposure to mercury. You know, this is interesting information, but it doesn't – it's nothing that we should panic about. It doesn't mean you have to suddenly worry about what food you're you're buying off the shelf. These are very low levels we're talking about. Probably the data is actually already old, in fact. These attempts at detecting and limiting mercury exposure are legitimate and should continue, and we should try to have as wide a buffer of safety as possible. But it seems as if the authors of this study and and the group that they're representing were going a little bit for the shock value in the press release, which I think overstated the implications of their research. How long before Jenny McCarthy says corn syrup causes autism? Yeah, I mean, it's already, you know, the mercury militia are already all over this. You know, this is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, big government cover-up of mercury exposure. They love it. Uh, the next news item actually also is about vaccines. I wanted to get a couple updates on the, the vaccine controversy um, that are worth pointing out very quickly. So we've spoken a lot in the past about the fact that the, there are dedicated anti-vaccination groups. Jenny McCarthy, for example, now is a celebrity leader of, of, these, uh, of this movement, and they claim that the ethyl mercury in thimerosal, which is a preservative in some vaccines, is caused or increased the incidence of autism. There's multiple lines of evidence now that show that that's not the case. There's this growing mountain of evidence, as we say, that this is not the case. And now there was recently a study published, which is one more bit of evidence against it. This is an Italian study. Uh, And what they did was very clever. So in 1992, this is a study comparing two different kinds of pertussis vaccines. One contained, uh, or one regimen contained a total amount of uh, exposure to ethyl mercury of 62.5 micrograms, and the other uh, 137.5. And what they figured out was, hey, we can go back and look at the kids from this study that we did in 92, because we have a con- you know two groups that were carefully characterized, and we can go back and see if they you know how many in each group got autism, or, or and we could actually do neurological studies on them and see if there's any differences. So that's what they did. They found out actually that there was basically no difference in the two groups in terms of uh, neurological outcomes. They measured 24 different neuropsychological tests, which resulted in over 70 different kind of comparisons that you could make statistically. And of those, four should have been statistically different by chance, and they only found that two were statistically significantly different. So that is you know, within the, what we would expect for chance, meaning that there was no difference between these two groups. They also looked at the incidence of autism and they found there was one, only one case of autism reported in the whole cohort, and that was in the lower dose group, not the higher dose group. So more evidence against a link between thimerosal and autism or any neurological disorder, because you, you know this is comparing a relatively high dose to a relatively low dose. Now, the response of the anti-vaccination crowd and the mercury militia has been predictable. Uh, they're they're going to pick this study apart to deny its implications, and that's what they've done. Their main point is that the study did not have a control group of people who got no vaccines or no mercury. And obviously that would have strengthened the data and the implications of this study, but it, but it doesn't take away what the study does show. We have to keep in mind that these are the same people who are claiming that when the vaccine schedule increased in the 90s so that the total dose of mercury went from around 
around 50 or 60 to around 180, that that caused a dramatic increase in autism. This study is looking at the same order of magnitude of change in exposure to mercury. So they can't say at the same time that it caused this huge increase of autism, but it wouldn't produce a difference in this study. So that's internal inconsistency in their arguments. Toxins should have a dose-response curve, a dose-response effect. effect. If you more than double the exposure, you should see some increased toxicity. This study showed none. So, of course, no one study is going to, can prove a lack of association or lack of correlation, but this adds to the 18 or so studies that are already out there showing no link between uh, mercury or thimerosal and autism or neurological disorders. Also, the other, the other quick update is we've talked previously about the fact that since the, the fear-mongering around vaccines has caused a decrease in, in compliance in, in the U.K. significantly to a lesser degree in the United States. And, that, and since that's happened, we've been seeing outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases occurring in clusters, mostly in unvaccinated children, which is no surprise. Last year in 2008, there have been several measles outbreaks, endemic measles outbreaks, the first time in a decade Again, all in unvaccinated children in areas where with with low vaccination rates, and now there's a new report of five cases of Haemophilus influenza type B or Hib meningitis, a very serious illness that can be prevented by vaccines. Uh, so there were five cases. Three of those children were unvaccinated, and one was a seven-month-old infant who died. So. We talk about the body count attached to Jenny McCarthy's misinformation and fear-mongering, and it's, it's starting to pile up more and more significantly uh, as you know, the, the scare tactics surrounding vaccines is getting more and more play. It's scary. It is scary. So you guys all know what's happening February 12th? Um, yeah, of course. Darwin yes. Day. Darwin Day. Darwin Day. Darwin's 200th birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, but you know, it turns out he's dead. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we have to spank the corpse 200 times? It. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and it's a 150-year anniversary of the publication of Origin of Species. Yes. So leading up to that, we're going to make sure each week we're going to cover some evolution news item. Last week we talked about uh, – we gave an update on the uh, creationist attempts to get you know intelligent design in the schools in Louisiana and Texas. This week we're going to talk about a very cool new news item – uh, published by National Geographic, in which we can actually see evolution happening before our eyes. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. When you think about evolution, I think in most people's minds, it's something that occurs extremely slowly over many, many, many millions of years and so forth. But there are, of course, cases where it happens, certainly within the span of less than a human lifetime. And this, again, is is one of those cases. So what we have here is a species of lizard called the fence lizard that exists uh, down in the southeastern parts of the United States. And in Alabama, uh, this species survives, but they cohabitate with fire ants, fire ants which were accidentally introduced to the environment in the 1930s. And they like to, well, kill and feast on uh, the lizards, the fence lizards. So, but what has happened since the 1930s, according to this new study, is that the lizards have 
undergone an evolu- ev- undergone an evolution by which they are growing longer legs so that they can shake off the ants when the ants climb onto them. What would happen in the past is that the lizards would just allow the ants to to be there and they would get under their under their protective skin and sting them and it would only take a few stings from a few fire ants to uh, literally kill these things, and then the ants would go and feast on them. Evan, do we know how long it's taken for that to take place? About fifty. Uh, I'm sorry, about seventy years or so. That's incredible. Yeah, just just within this within this span, probably and most likely less less time than that. And what has happened is that the uh, lizards that had longer legs. Um, of the fence lizards were the ones that were able to survive because they were able to just physically shake off these ants more effect more effectively, and the studies are now in that the fence lizards that live in this region that cohabitate with these fire ants their eighty uh, percent of these lizards have the longer legs uh, in the region. They compared them to lizards to fence lizards in other areas of the southeast in which the they don't cohabitate with the fire ants. And in those areas, their limbs are, are extremely, extremely smaller. So what we have here is a case of evolution in front of our eyes so that the species can you know, better survive the attack of the ants. Now, what's really interesting about this also is that they looked at baby lizards and they found that 100% of them exhibit the behavior of vigorously you know, shaking before running when, when they get exposed to ants. And they think that that's because their scales are not as well developed, not as thick, not as thick. So they evolved this adaptation of vigorously shaking so that they dislodge any ants or small critters that are on them, uh, and then running away. But then they lose that behavior as they get older. Think again. The thinking is that they could then rely upon their scales to protect them, so they don't have to waste the time and energy, you know, vigorously shaking themselves and running. But now that the the fire ants can sting through their scales, those lizards that retain this immature trait of shaking into adulthood, those are the ones that are predominating in terms of the, the, the populations in areas where there's fire ants. So this actually isn't an entirely new ability or adaptation. What it's really showing is the change in gene frequencies in populations of pre-existing traits you know, in, in uh, adaptation to selective pressures mm-hmm. provided by this new you know, predator in their environment. So this really establishes well the whole bit about natural selection, you know? <laughs> the whole bit? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, not a new, it's, it's not a new mutation. It's not a completely new adaptation, but it is showing that gene frequencies of, of traits that vary in a population change in response to selective pressures that you know, we can document being introduced in, in recorded history you know, in these populations. So again, no, like, like any complex scientific process or, or claim, you can't establish the whole thing with any one piece of evidence or any one study. But this is, this is more evidence for this one piece of evolution, the natural selection bit. And of course, you know that the creationists and the, you know, the evolution deniers are going to say all the things that this study isn't, missing the point about what this study is. Similar to the vaccine study that we just talked about, that's a typical tactic, is to say what the study doesn't do or what the data, the evidence doesn't establish, as if that in some way takes away from what it actually does show. You're right, Steve. This this just helps compound the existing evidence and reinforces it. 
of what is yeah. already out there. We should also mention that uh, the study was done by Pennsylvania State University, and the lead author's name was Tracy Lankild. You know, how how lucky are we, though, that 70 years ago somebody recorded this information, and then now yeah. we can compare... You know, we can compare it to what's happening today and actually draw a conclusion that is that important and, and, and it carries that much weight right. about evolution. One more quick news item uh, before we go on to our interview. We're interviewing Tim Minchin in just a moment. Very cool guy. Very Yay. funny. Interview. Very talented. But first we have our stupid news item of the week. Yay! <laughs> this is this is this one is just absolutely unbelievable. And actually, Rebecca, we you and I, unbeknownst to each other, I think we both blocked about this. It was that about, stupid. We did. It was that stupid. The Obama inauguration <laughs> UFO. The, what? The rare double blogging. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty stupid. Um, <laughs> apparently, Rebecca, um, what was the title to your to your blog about this? <laughs> the full title was. Was there a UFO at Obama's inauguration? No, you ignorant hick. (laughs) For which I expected to get a lot of crap from um, the Southern contingent. (laughs) Yeah, but it turns out it wasn't ignorant hicks. hicks, (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, no offense to all of our listeners in the Southern community. No, I grew up around ignorant hicks. So, I mean, I love you guys. Um, <laughs> no, no, it was That's it was merely helping. a play on the fact that the the person who who uploaded this video happens to have this thick southern drawl, and I adore the southern accent. I know that everyone who has a southern accent and can think rationally cringes every time they see something like this happen because <laughs> the guy is just so dumb uh, sounding. Uh, basically, this man was watching the CNN feed of Obama's inauguration last week. And he saw a UFO. uh, No, not a UFO. He saw a um, bird or gnat or something. No, it was a UFO. It was an unidentified flapping object. Okay. (laughs) He saw (laughs) a UFO um, fly into the the screen. And what he, he claims he sees is that the that the object goes around the obelisk of the Washington Monument and then disappears into the trees. And you can watch this on YouTube, um, or if you go to Skeptic, you can. I've embedded it, and it's pretty ridiculous. It's blurry. It's so blurry that it's obviously not a tremendously large object. Yet he immediately dismisses the idea that it, it's a bird. And decides that it it must be military security technology is what he claims, but it's really obviously not. I I think it's a an insect, but Steve, you you think it's a bird? I think right? it's a bird for a couple of reasons. All right, give it to me. So yeah. the commenter said that the object is moving in a straight line, and it's that's not true. If you look closely at the video, you could see that it's moving in a sinusoidal shape, it's, which means it's bobbing up and down a little bit as it moves across the screen, which is exactly how a bird flies when it's flapping its wing, not when it wings, not when it's gliding. Insects don't fly that way. Insects you know, have more of an erratic or a straight path. They don't bob up and down as they flap their wings. Mm-hmm. Birds do. 
Second, you could see the wings flapping. <laughs> I could see the thing's wings flapping. Maybe, Steve, the UFO could have could have flapping wings. Why would the you guy that? even yeah. says now it kind of looks like there's wings flapping here? But I think that's a that's from the that's, <laughs> that's from the camera. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, that's an art. That's an artifact of the camera. But but it's a UFO. I mean, come on. And if you watch, maybe you're right. I didn't see the very high quality version. <clears throat> yeah, so. but we'll if, look at it and see if you agree with me. If you, I think if that you watch the video on YouTube. They uh, they show the frame where where it's very blurry, right? So it actually extends the shape of the object because mm-hmm. it, it's 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 yeah. actually like by the nature of the way that the data is captured, it's extending the shape of the object. And then when they when they change the color background to to accentuate the object, it actually does look like the shape of a UFO. But if without having that knowledge about how the video is capturing the data, you're just going to blindly think, oh, okay, it's a it's an elongated shape. Yeah, but you know, I yeah. compared that to the rods. You know, the rod phenomenon. Yeah. People think they see oh, sure. these Fine elongated rods. objects caught on video with, again, like these sinusoidal blur around the outline. Those Steve, what's are that word again? Sinusoidal. Sinusoidal means of the nose. <laughs> no, it, no, wait, no. Like a, like a sine wave. It's like that up and down curve of a sine wave. Yes. So those are insects rods and that's what happens when you have something moving quickly across a video screen is you get that it blurs out and it creates a rod like shape in the direction that it's moving with the blur of the flapping around the outside that's exactly what you're seeing in this video just in bird form as opposed to the the insect rods which really are elongated with the with the pretty you know wing patterns on the outside so it's you know look at the look at the real time video the other thing is when you look at it in slow motion you don't get the feel for how fast it's moving and just the what we call the jizz, which is what birders really call it. <laughs> so, Sarah, I didn't make up that word. But what birders call just the gestalt of what something looks and feels like the, the bird's <laughs> jizz, believe it or not. I thought, I thought it was called spooge. <laughs> <laughs> but when you see it, you see it in real time, like, God, it's something flying across the thing. And you also get, it, it flies in front of, in front of the Washington Monument. So you have the perspective of something in the background, and you get a really good feel for its size and distance and speed. It's hey, a bird. Steve, yeah. Do, uh, do, do roosters jizz? <laughs> they, you, you, you don't jizz. You have a jizz. Oh, so, so cocks ah, do have see? a jizz. They have absolutely <laughs> oh, have God, a jizz. Oh, God, don't. Come on. <laughs> oh, it's, a good, it's a fair question. Your it's birder jargon. Have come a on. jizz. You can't, you can't bleep that out. Don't edit that no, out. Only, That's only swallows have it. <laughs> oh, wait. Don't, don't, oh. Is that jerk chicken? Uh. <laughs> hey, Rebecca, just so you know, the video on your blog expired as well. Uh, yeah, they yanked the video, so you have to link to the CNN site. Yeah, you got to keep pushing. Uh, okay. Hey, yeah, and please, could could our UFO have a noise or something? I mean, if something is really, oh, Evan, you know, don't you know anything <laughs> about alien propulsion systems? Come on, man. I, I know, I know things about government cover-ups when it comes to UFOs. Very, very interesting stuff. Don't forget another key bit of indirect evidence here. There was how many people were there? What, a trillion or some trillion and something people. <laughs> Yeah, at the, at the time this was filmed, it, it wasn't packed yet. This is two hours before the actual speech. But there's hundreds of people milling about. Yeah, but plus most people's this. eyes are focused on, on yeah. Obama and not on the sky, you know? Well, Obama wasn't out yet. He wasn't out yet. This what? Was, the, yes, he was. The, the, what do you mean he wasn't out yet? The video of him shows him standing right there. No, this is two hours before his actual speech. I'm looking at the video. 
Oh, this is a different video. Oh, th- this is a different video, Jay. Well, I, That's a completely different video with another yeah. UFO. Holy mackerel. No. Well, I, okay, d- before we continue, <laughs> I still haven't seen the first it one. It doesn't. It says wow. new UFO. I love this. This And this has these fantastic graphics. Oh, holy crap. This is a good find. So, so Jay, you're, yeah, Jay is actually referring to a different UFO Barack speech one. This one... Isn't the internet with, uh, amazing? Is it amazing? So you, this is a video. I actually have seen mm-hmm. this one before, too. This was one you're looking at Barack actually giving his speech from the side. And in the background, there again is a dark object flying through the sky in the background. It also looks like a bird to me. Yeah, those are obviously <laughs> birds. <laughs> that, there's like not even... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my God. That's amazing. UFO crowds will cling on to anything. Oh, my God. They can they turn a it. bird no into grasp. a mystery. I mean, come on. Good grasp at any straw. Well, let's go on to our interview. <laughs> if anyone can show me one example in the history of the world of a single psychic who's been able to prove under reasonable experimental conditions that they are able to read minds. And if anyone can show me one example in the history of the world of a single astrologer who's been able to prove under reasonable experimental conditions that they can predict future events by interpreting celestial signs. And if anyone can show me one example in the history of the world of a single homeopathic practitioner who's been able to prove under reasonable experimental conditions that solutions made up of infinitely tiny particles of good stuff dissolved repeatedly into relatively huge quantities of water have a consistently higher medicinal value than a similarly administered placebo. (laughs) And if anyone can show me one example in the entire history of the world of a single spiritual or religious person who's been able to show either empirically or logically the existence of a higher power with any consciousness or interest in the human race, or ability to punish or reward humans for their moral choices, or that there is any reason other than fear to believe in any version of an afterlife. (laughs) I will give you my piano. (laughs) One of my legs. And my wife. Joining us now is Tim Minchin. Tim, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you very much, Steve, for having me. And Tim is a musician, a comedian, an actor, a songwriter, and a skeptic, which is why he's joining us on our show. So, Tim, tell us uh, a little bit about your career. How did you get to the point where you are now? Uh, well, I was, I'm, a, I'm a muso, really, I guess. So I was acting and playing music for uh, years, and... I guess the the real change came when I kind of realized that I had to put all the things I was doing together sort of thing. I, I, I was trying to be an actor in the acting world and a muso in the muso world, and in the meantime I was writing these kind of quirky songs that didn't seem to click with record producers and stuff because they were half serious and half completely ridiculous. And uh, I just started putting these solo shows together. It was just me and a piano and... um and suddenly I'm kind of a comedian and uh, I travel around doing stupid songs and talking about stuff and and the whole uh, sceptical side of things is 
it's not recent in that I've always written about stuff that I think doesn't make sense, but my articulation of it is is pretty recent. Just the last couple of years, I've started sort of thinking this is this is maybe a point of difference for me as a as a comedian, as a writer, is that I'm I'm trying to get these subject matters into my material. And do you think that that making your act into essentially a comedy act was the step that uh, really is when your career took off? Totally, it was complete to the extent that anything happens overnight. It was it it, it was as quick as as a, tra- uh, a as quick a transformation as you could possibly imagine. Really, is uh, I started doing these comedy shows and probably took a couple of years for me to really figure out. Uh, the format and what I was trying to do um, but as soon as I really landed on that and that included me sort of changing my image a bit and and just really nailing down this persona and uh, from that adding moment the mascara. adding the makeup and the hair and yeah and uh, and from that moment it, it has moved very quickly although yeah. uh, not a day too too soon for me because I'd been sitting around for 10 years really banging my head against walls you know Right, right. So you just found that magic combination that clicked, and yeah, I think so. And and, and just acknowledge and realizing that uh, uh, just because you're a serious musician doesn't mean you have to take yourself seriously. And I think that's where I've found a a gap in the market. Most people who are comedians and use music uh, use the music itself comedically. I, mm-hmm. the the music is not taken particularly lightly in my shows i i always play on big grand pianos and i play them not brilliantly but uh well enough to impress people and uh and the the comedy comes from juxtaposing that reasonably uh well performed music with stupid lyrics you know so i've found this uh this niche i guess where i'm i'm d- doing real music uh but I've I've sort of let myself be an idiot with it, and it's quite hard to when you've spent all those years trying to become a good musician to then undermine it so thoroughly. But uh, I, I'm pretty happy now that I've found out that's that's the best way for me to yeah. have a career. And you're also completely fantastic about stepping away from the piano and talking to the audience. And it's not like you're doing a stand-up act, but you're genuinely funny and relating to the audience on a personal level and tying things. Uh, you know, basically segueing in between your songs. Did you feel like that was a was that a challenge for you at all? Because it seems very natural. Well, I, I've never felt scared on stage. I'm, uh, well, that's not quite true. I, uh, everyone feels scared on stage, but what I mean is, I feel very comfortable doing that. I'm not one of these. I'm, I'm the opposite of the person who gets uh, vomits before they public speak. I I just like it. I like being on stage. I guess I'm some sort of um, genetic show off or something. But uh, w- what happened is suddenly I was doing. S- what is basically stand-up comedy in front of 500, 600, 1,000 people and I'd only been doing comedy for a year and that's a pretty rare thing. It usually takes a lot longer than that to find those audiences but I found those audiences through my songs but that didn't mean that while I was doing my stand-up I wasn't just a, a brand new sort of amateur stand-up suddenly in, in theatres full of people. So it was, it was scary on that level but I've, I've just sort of relaxed about it and and yeah. and I've always known that I can get away with stuff and 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 Rebecca you, you kindly said I sort of have 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 a rapport I don't I don't know what that means but I think it um just means that people feel like they know me so they don't judge me too hard while I'm just chatting to them you know Well yeah I think it, I think it means that you're able to say really controversial things or things that 
would be controversial if they were coming up someone else's mouth. I don't know. Do you, do you find that? Do you have any audiences you, that if I give said you so- any kind of? If I said something and it came out of someone else's mouth, that would be controversial. Well, no, that'd be a ventriloquism act. But. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Everything's been done before, Rebecca. Well, I'll tell you what I what I noticed was that you you've the persona that you've cultivated. It seems to me to be a self-deprecating, like failed wannabe rock and roll nerd. I think you actually even used the term rock and roll nerd in one of your songs. I do. And that, I think that self. I mean, correct me if you think I'm wrong with that, but that seems that that self-deprecating aspect of it does open the door a lot to then you being freer with your criticism. Is that a deliberate thing, or you just sort of found that that's true? Uh, you're absolutely right, and it's it's not deliberate in that I don't think I consciously set out to do that, but it's deliberate in that in hindsight I am very clearer about i'm sort of uh, analytical in hindsight i've I, c- I can work out now why things started working for me and i can reapply them to my new shows and and you're absolutely right i think comedy uh, and maybe all forms of public speaking or, or communication is is about status and in comedy especially my big grand piano is a high status thing my ability to play is a high status thing the things I'm saying are a bit high status and judgmental so you have to offset that otherwise people feel threatened so I I, I guess yeah exactly I I offset it uh, originally subconsciously unconsciously but now consciously by not wearing shoes and shuffling around a bit and sort of having an apologetic tone and yet what I'm saying is not particularly full of apology right and just comedy itself I think it works to to accomplish a lot of that if you're if you're funny that gives you a huge ability to be critical and even insulting the yeah. funny you are the more the more controversial you can be yeah you're playing uh you're playing tricks on people i mean it's and music does the th- same thing music and and laughter are listening to music and laughing are states that we're very comfortable and familiar with and and by putting people in that headspace you're uh, sugaring the pill they, they don't even realize they're they're uh, letting you in I think that's what songs do as well. People go, ah, oh, we, we're happy with songs. We're open to songs. We're open to what, what happens in music. And so, so if my lyrics are really harsh, they don't notice them as much. Well, how about the skepticism angle, Tim? Uh, when, when did you become a skeptic? How did you find it? And what, what's, been, what's been your influence into skepticism? Well, you guys are the f- first... You guys, basically, which sounds it sounds it sounds no way, ridiculous. I didn't, I didn't ask that question, expecting <laughs> that answer. So, I, I'll, but I'll, I would I'll, like to hear the reason. The reason that that's honest is because you didn't teach you guys didn't teach me how to think or anything. But the idea of the term skeptic and the idea that it's a very American thing. I mean, there are little bits of it in Australia and the UK, but the, the term is is sort of an American invention. I think, as I understand it, I don't mean the the word, but this kind of uh, title that you guys and, and Randy and all those people are using. I'd never heard of it, is all I'm saying. I guess I can't, I can't really talk about the, the history of the, of the term as a, as a, uh, a group title. But um, Do you think that's because that's the default position in Australia? Because <laughs> we have so many Australian listeners that 
it makes me wonder whether or not there's just that's just the attitude uh, well, that's the culture there is being skeptical so you don't need a word for it i don't know you know australia's got lots of people who believe stupid stuff probably a very similar percentage to anywhere else but there's no doubt that my sense is that in america to be a what um, barack very kindly referred to as a non-believer it, to talk about mm-hmm. religion specifically or or sort of scientifically minded you feel like you're a minority in america because because of the prominence of of magical thinking in the discourse, I'm not saying there's more of it. I'm just saying it's in it's it's out in public. So so to fight against it, you feel you need a title or a banner uh, in Australia and England because everyone hides their wacky beliefs. It's a little bit more shameful. Uh, you you don't feel the need to walk <laughs> under a so. banner to hold the opposing view. The skeptical movement was certainly founded, you know, in the the modern skeptical movement, I should say, in the United States. And I I was actually really just recently learned myself that it wasn't replicated in other other countries. I mean, there are skeptical organizations in the UK and Italy and Australia, etc. But in terms of its public presence, it seems that... It, it it's not at the same level as it is in the U.S. It's very it's very underground and it, and it's very yeah. much from as as I see it uh, for now it feels like a, the the kind of uh, Australian chapter of an American club. But that's as I say it's not because uh, there's not huge groups of like-minded people. We're just talking about uh, titles here. Uh, and and to sort of answer uh, Evan's question, I guess I really came to skepticism skepticism through atheism um and both those titles i i don't try to use too much just because people sort of have a whole lot of baggage they bring to those titles but i've always as long as i can remember been baffled by um uh by religion and so i i've always done written a lot about it but long before i was calling myself a comedian i was writing satirical lyrics about that question and then i sort of started realizing that the and i studied philosophy at uni and so i guess i i started realizing at some point that this sort of critical thinking i take to that issue uh is is worthy worthily applied in in all life really and then uh yeah but but finding you guys was a big thing for me because it gave me a a place to go each week where i sort of felt like i was um just kind of expanding my education and i've never been you you're, you you were the first podcast i ever listened to and basically i'm still still the only one i regularly listen to because i don't have much time but it's you guys just do a good sort of you're pretty good across the board and obviously uh i have a i much prefer to just uh, turn to an authority than do any research myself <laughs> <laughs> If you started with a kind of skepticism of religion and things like that, was there a point where you got interested in science uh, and was it, you know, what inspired that? I think I'm just really getting interested in science properly. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm the son of a surgeon and the grandson of a surgeon and so I've got this sort of background and, and not being that is kind of what what's defined me being an arty type is you know how you define yourself in in opposition to or or in alignment with your family not not that my my dad and i are best friends but we're just so different in that but actually we're not my skepticism and my atheism or agnosticism has always been born of a sense that they are petty answers 
that magical thinking is a is an insufficient answer in the face of uh, natural beauty and stuff. I and I've always tried to be very positive as opposed to negative in both my scepticism and my atheism. I think uh, religion ruins beauty and I think um, uh, magical thinking ruins the possibility of finding the beauty in science and all that sort of thing. And and finding a way to be positive whilst damning things is your job and my job and Dawkins's job and you know and 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 we all do it to varying degrees i i i'm lucky because i've got a piano and nice songs and a stage and pretty lights so packaging it up to be a positive experience uh, is isn't as hard well yeah and I, I think you did a brilliant job of it um recently you were part of robin ince's nine carols for godless people and every single review i read named you as one of the highlights because of the great like nine minute long beat poem you did called storm can you just give our listeners um an idea of what storm is about uh uh, storm's a a a beat poem which sounds horrendous and it's nine minutes long which sounds horrendous but um (laughs) i i've always i don't know why i chose that format i guess i knew it would be long and i wanted it to be conversational and I've always written in that in that format, but it's it uh, it's a story of a dinner party I went to, which is a fictional dinner party, bringing together all the dinner parties I've ever had, where I've got myself in a situation where someone started talking about something that I don't believe in or I'm pretty sure is bollocks, but have not spoken. But of course, in this poem, I speak eventually in real life. Well, well, on stage, I'm I'm fairly fearless in saying what I mean, but in in life, I'm uh, diplomacy always reigns, which which I think is an important thing to have as well. But uh, I bottle it all up, and I guess I stick it in my show. And this uh, this woman's ranting on and just sort of saying every single kind of non-evidential thing you can say, and eventually, me or my character uh, breaks and and just has a bit of a rant and he's a bit full of grog by this stage so it's it's quite uh, unabashed uh, but it ends on a very gentle note with with the uh, a more succinct uh, version of what I guess I was trying to say earlier which is isn't this enough you know isn't isn't this world enough it, it was a huge thing for me to write because I kind of tried to get a, a, a great deal of stuff off my chest and I still feel it doesn't go even halfway to saying everything I want to say but I certainly set out to try and say a lot in as succinct a way as possible and as you can tell if I don't sit down with a pen and paper I, I ramble so uh, and then I put it to a jazz backing and stuff it's it's an interesting piece and it, it briefly went up online uh, someone st- uh, illegally recorded it at those gigs that you mentioned Rebecca and uh, and put it on, on YouTube and I got them to take it down because it was such horrible quality but I'm actually putting it back up tonight so <laughs> people will be able to be able to listen to it and the lyrics are online as well so do, do you feel that as you become more secure in your career that you are more free to comment on more serious things like your beliefs on on religion and, and wacky stuff? I don't think I've ever felt not free to, uh, but I guess actually as I get more secure in my career, that security comes from more people watching you, I guess, and the more people that watch me, the more I'm aware that I am I have a responsibility to 
be accurate in what I say in a way. I mean, my main intention, I always end up sounding so serious and boring. My main intention is to have a laugh and, and I would hate for anyone to think that my show is all about skepticism and science. It, it, it's definitely uh, my belief system and my critical think, my love of critical thinking and, and ideas underpins everything I do. But if, if you, if you're a diehard skeptic and you want to come and see someone do a whole lot of material about how, um, stuff ain't true. You're, you're going to be disappointed for a, for a good bit of the show. But um, but to the extent that I do talk about beliefs and and preach a bit, the more, the greater the audience is, the more I feel a sense of responsibility to get it right. And of course, uh, you get called on that. I mean, I've just finished a three or four email exchange with a Palestinian Muslim woman who doesn't like my Palestine peace anthem, and um, just had a, a long exchange with a woman who's who who for whom my material was a real breaking point for her. She She's never really been sure that the God stuff that her whole family's into was right, but my material, she claims, was a kind of real push away from it. So so there's two examples, one of someone who hates me and one of someone who likes me, and, and you suddenly go, Christ, these are people who are listening to me, you know. So, um, Steve... I think I feel confident to say what I believe, and I've certainly got a forum uh, um, in which to say it. But uh, I think that the weight of uh, responsibility—you know—you've you, got to admit that that there are a lot of, especially young people, listening to what you do, and so you, you think more carefully before you leap. And then once you've thought about it, you go in as hard as you possibly can. <laughs> that's that's awesome about the, the woman emailing you about you know, her religion and everything. You know, you get a deconversion merit badge for that now. I get, I get a lot of that, actually. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of that stuff. Get a notch in your belt for that one. Yeah, right. Me and Jay. On a previous interview I heard of yours, you compared Australian audiences with UK audiences, saying that Australian audiences are more into the vulgarity, not so much in the UK, but they like the sex jokes. Yeah. Anything to add to that? And also, how would you compare Australian and UK audiences to US audiences? And in particular, do you, do you get more worried about the religious commentary when you're in the US? Uh, yeah, if, if I triangulated that, that intercontinental assessment, I, I, would, I would say Australians don't mind the swear words. Uh, the English love uh, sauciness and Americans... America. I mean, it's ridiculous to try and make generalizations, but to the extent that I can, yeah, it's the God stuff that is a significant difference. And it's not that there are more walkouts, although I guess there are, but it's not heaps. It's just that the kind of built-in response for an American audience when you say, you know, when I do my song, I love Jesus, I hate faggots, the standard response is a gasp. And I'm not saying that everyone doesn't gasp at that. It's designed to be a gasp. But actually, that's not a good example. Everyone gasps at that. Some of us laugh. <laughs> but every time I, if I talk about God in America, it's one of those gasp laughs, which I always get the feeling they're just gasping because they think that's what you have to do because someone's disrespecting someone else's belief system. I think, I think that's a real thing in America. But, and, and some of the swear words, I think you guys swear less, probably not Rebecca, but Americans in general. Huh. I think, uh, or at least, you know, <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys reckon? I think it's used in anger more in Australia. You know, we call each other. I oh, get a old. Cunt. 
Whereas in America, uh, yeah, that, in America, that, no. you've got to be very careful no, no, no. that. Cause yeah, yeah, that'll be bleeped yeah. out. That, that word is, what yeah. the, yeah. what taboo. the fuck? Oh, what do you mean you, that'll be bleeped out? I didn't come on this, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> in the U.S., vulgarity is either used in anger or it's used in intimacy. It's sort of the two ends of the spectrum. And yeah, right. it, it does actually have a bit of a bonding aspect to it. it. It sounds extremely familiar. But you wouldn't swear to somebody that you weren't very familiar with unless you were being angry with them. Does that make yeah. sense? Or, or just trying to get a reaction. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, think that, I think that is the case to an extent in, in the UK and Australia. But I, I'd say, yeah, I think that that's a slightly more uh, polarized, yeah. You're not supposed to call someone a bugger in uh, England. That's very, very bad. Bugger. Well, bugger. Uh, bugger means bum sex, but in Australia, it's extremely common. Uh, I, I can't be. Bu- I can't the be word. buggered. Bugger that. Only in I fact, said twat during my talk in yeah. London, and they made fun of me. Apparently, it's twat. So we say twat, but twat's actually a vagina, whereas twat means you silly, silly person. In Australia, you can use the word. You can use the word uh, bugger in in advertising now. A few years ago. Uh, an ad came on with the word bugger in it re- repeatedly. It was a dog saying bugger every time something went wrong. So there you go. Here, here's a slightly succinct que- uh, answer to uh, the question that started all this. I actually think when you're doing non-parochial subject matter like sex, death and God, which is how I analyse the kind of topics I cover, there is a remarkably low level of difference between the Western countries that I travel to, you're much more likely to see a big difference in audience reaction in between uh, rural US and city US than you are between city US and city UK, you know? Oh, that's interesting. And I, I, I've read that in other contexts that class differences or, as you say, city versus rural is actually much greater than differences between different countries actually especially that. because uh, obviously that would that would change when you start going to uh, non-western countries totally different mm-hmm. cultures but uh yeah especially nowadays the u.s uh, uk and australia in any given socioeconomic group with a certain level of education they're basically consuming the same stuff the same books the same films they're having the same conversations in slightly different voices we have conversations in normal voices and you people talk funny. Right. <laughs> and I think that skepticism and the skeptical movement is is becoming extremely international. And I think skeptics have more in common with each other uh, across countries than maybe they do with non-skeptics in their own culture. Absolutely. In, in a way. Yeah. I mean, one of the great joys of of me discovering you know an audience is that I have... Uh, slowly increasing numbers of people in in those three countries that follow my stuff, and they've got this forum where they, which is basically an excuse to talk to each other using me as a as a kind of inway inroad, and uh, it's just amazing watching these like minded people simply simply that they're they're finding me and then finding the forum that my fans have set up. It's just amazing the hit rate of people. Just they just adore each other. Admittedly, mostly um, young women, because I think that's the demographic that happens to not be too ashamed to be on a fan forum of a of a thirty three year old pudgy Australian pianist. But um, but they just it's just amazing watching 
you wouldn't be able to tell where they're from by their chat. They're just very like-minded people discovering each other through a, a kind of philosophy, I suppose. Not that you know what I mean—a common, common mm-hmm. sense of humour, world and view, common, sense Com- common world, of, world view. That's right. So I guess uh, being a skeptic is absolutely the same, and it's been a huge joy. Literally, the last few weeks is the first interaction I've had with you guys, apart from uh, listening to SGU. In the last couple of weeks, I've I've gone to a, my first ever skeptics in the pub in London and then done a podcast with Rebecca and then gone out with Richard Wiseman and Rebecca and all that stuff. Also awesome. Yeah, it was all very awesome. <laughs> that was uh, a great time. So I, I can't sort of, that. I was involved in each of those She things. was involved in all of them. She would not leave me alone. And uh, She's biased. Every time I turned around, Tim was there. Was <laughs> I tend to be there a bit. So you've joined the collective and you've realised that resistance is futile. <laughs> yeah, resistance saying. is futile. And, and I, I've been listening to you guys going, I wonder if these guys have heard of me, you know, that... Because I know I've talked to Randy a bit, and I know I've talked to you, Steve, about you know boring medical stuff once. Thanks for replying to that, by the way. Do you know that I did that? Did you notice I did that, or did you know my name when I sent that? I, I think at the time I didn't know who you were, yeah. but I subsequently obviously did. You've noted it, right? That was interesting, and I it was it was a really interesting situation for me because uh, I had this very sick friend, and I literally kind of went down every path I could, and I kept thinking I've got to ask Novella about this, and uh, you very kindly replied. But but apart from that, I, I've sort of been thinking, oh god, I should talk to these guys, and then all in a few weeks, I've kind of met everybody, and and it, and it all really kicked off when I when that poem first went online, and. and and uh, Peasy put it up on his website, and so hopefully, uh, when I put it back online again tonight, I'll I'll further ingratiate myself into this community of nerds. It's important too. It's important to have recognizable figures such as yourself, you know, out there helping spread the word. I mean, it it, it definitely does need. It, we definitely do need that and more of it. And we need the artistic types too, because we do tend to mm-hmm. be heavy with the science nerds. It's good to try and make being critical a critical thinker cool and that's to a certain extent what for for some young people who can't can't see through my obvious disguise i think that's what they think i think this guy's cool he can play music and he wears makeup and he's thinking critically and and that sounds massively nerdy but i think that that that's what sort of gives inspires me a bit or at least makes me very pleased that i've ended up doing this sort of material because i think it's uh, again, I, my intention is not to teach or preach or alter the world, but if there is a, a little effect that I have by talking about the stuff I'm interested in, then I'm glad it's this effect. And, and it's really interesting because artists are, as you guys point out quite often, artists are associated with nonsense a lot. The the celebrities we see, like Piven with his fish and uh and the the crazy and madonna with her craziness and they're, they're just associated with having no it's it's a post it's postmodernism and actually i'd never really mm-hmm. heard postmodern postmodernism critiqued before i come from a liberal arts background which goldacre just sneers at constantly throughout <laughs> <laughs> He's always going liberal arts. This arts graduate, this which which sort of at the time got my back up. But um, uh, hey Ben, how are you? Your criticism of postmodernism sort of came as a huge relief because I I really was educated in a way that postmodernism was just the new truth. 
it's taken me to quite recently not not just your criticism but uh, things i've read and stuff to go oh hold on that that i don't believe that actually i don't believe knowledge is relative and i don't believe even morality is relative i mean it's it's ever changing but there's a there's an aim we should all aim for a for a non-relative morality or something you know all this sort of stuff and and it's been that that's something that finding uh, re-engaging with the sort of critical thinking that I learnt in philosophy and, and really engaging with science and the scientific method, this this kind of exciting non-relative thing, has allowed me to... It's, it's changed the way I... Not the way I think, but the way I feel free to express the way I think. I don't feel like like someone who... So many of my contemporaries, and I mean my age group and artists, mm-hmm. just... Uh, postmodernists, you know, they just think it's all relative. Friends of mine, really good friends of mine, they're like, oh, well, you know, there's no such thing as evil. Well, actually, I don't think there's such thing as evil, but that's another conversation. Right. Speaking of your show, though, Tim, uh, so how can our listeners see you, download your stuff? How, How do they consume your media? Well... It's not that easy in America yet, although I'm coming, hoping to spend a good few months there next year trying to uh, uh, make some headway. But at the moment, uh, YouTube is a great friend of mine, I think, although it does expose a hell of a lot of my material to audiences who, when they come to see my show, will know all the jokes. But uh, you can order my uh, DVD from America. You just can't play it on your PAL or non-PAL or whatever you've got machines. <laughs> you have to play them on your computer. But uh, I'm hoping my new album's going to be up on iTunes in the next couple of months. But uh, look, I'm happy to just uh, you know, put stuff on YouTube at the moment and let people consume it if it means uh, bit by bit people in America who are interested will start finding me. And timminchin.com, obviously. <laughs> well, well, Tim, thank you very much for joining us on The Skeptic's Guide. It's uh, been a massive pleasure. And we'll definitely uh, have you back again sometime in the future. I, I, I really want to do that. Maybe I'll, uh, we'll, maybe we'll uh, organize a, a live skeptics, uh, a, a live SGU sometime when I'm in the US and I'll turn up and juggle. Oh. Awesome. Oh, I hope that's, that's not a just a tease, Tim. That would be an honor. Well, take care, Tim, and we'll, we'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Bye. Good night. It's time for... Science or fiction? Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Um, Actually, before I read the items for this week, I have one errata from last week. I got a lot of flack about the... Errata. Oh, errata. Errata. Not erotica. Yeah, erotica. Well, when erotica from last week, I got tired. a lot of flack about the whole panther thing. Yeah, so this is Pantera. what happened. Yeah, this is what happened. Not uh, just a band. The this the item from the book that I was adapting said that there's no such animal as a panther, and when, and their point was that the word panther refers to a just large cats in general and no specific species, and things that people call panthers are really leopards or cougars. The problem with me using that straight up was that there's the Florida panther, which is a specific species. But I wanted to use that item, so I tried to adapt it by saying, okay, well, that's a common name, so we'll just say that there's no scientific classification. But I actually made it wrong in a different way because panthera is the genus for some of the large cats. So it is used in scientific notation, just not as a specific species, only as a, as a genus, right? So, genus, yes. Technically, that item was wrong, too, from last yeah. week. 
So but none of you guys guessed it, it. so you still you still all got it wrong because none of you guessed it either. And I uh-huh. saw people wrote in to say that that was um, the book you were talking about. That's from QI. I didn't yeah. realize. I love yes. that show. Yes, that's quite interesting. I see. With Stephen Fry. But let's go on to this week. Item number one. Researchers find that adding small amounts of chocolate to a cow's feed increases their milk production by as much as 20%. Item number two, a new study reveals that animals that hibernate or burrow are less likely to go extinct. And item number three, a recently published review of research suggests that technology has caused a decrease in critical thinking and analysis skills. Jay, go first. Researchers find that adding small amounts of chocolate to a cow's feed increases their milk production by as much as 20%. Well, I'm not going to say the obvious joke. Is it about getting chocolate milk? Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> just, it's too easy. It's, you can't even say it. It's just yeah. too yeah. easy. I don't know. I, don't, I just don't feel like whatever chemical that would be in chocolate that they're claiming would have that effect. That's a dramatic increase. Like 20% increase is huge. So I, I don't think that one's sounded too hot right now. Second one, a new study reveals that animals that hibernate or burrow are less likely to go extinct. That sounds pretty legitimate. I can think of some reasons why that that makes a lot of sense. I like that one. And the last one, a recently published review of research suggests that technology has caused a decrease in critical thinking and analysis skills. I could believe that one as well just because I've seen seen a few of my skills go down just in, in my in my lifetime, because I, re- I rely on the computer a lot for things. You have I, skills? Yeah, yeah. Aww. He's got <laughs> skills. Aww. I'm going to, I'm going to agree, not agree, because nobody said anything yet. I'm going to just right. say the first one's <laughs> bullshit about the chocolate milk. I'm going to okay. agree with the voice right. in my head. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Robert. My turn already. Um, Bobby. Roberto. <laughs> Rob. I agree with Jay that adding chocolate to a cow's feed... Producing twenty percent—I mean, that twenty percent milk production increase is huge just by adding chocolate. See, animals hibernating—that kind of makes sense. If you're kind of a form of protection, you're—you know—you're—you're not—you're not out there walking around where a cougar or a panther could jump on you. So I would think that would be some sort of aid in in um, helping yeah. you not go extinct. And then the last one, um, technology causing a decrease in critical thinking—that uh, makes sense. Over reliance on the technology, I, I could see. Uh, negatively impacting uh, these, those skills. So the, the the oddball for me is is the chocolate and the and the cow. I guess I'll just have to go with that and say that one is fiction. Alrighty, Rebecca. And it certainly is suspicious. But then I don't know. Animals hibernating less likely to go extinct. If that's true, then why are most extinct animals buried in the ground? What what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> She's on a roll. Just just let me let me suss this out. Shut up. Yeah yeah. Uh, Why don't you just start from the beginning and we'll pretend that you didn't say that. Can I make a chocolate milk joke? Yeah. Yes, please. We're t- and uh, <laughs> technology causing a decrease in critical thinking makes no sense because I mean it's so much easier to do research now that. It makes much more sense that it would increase critical thinking skills. But then again, Susan Jacoby tells me that technology makes us all morons. So that's, I guess that's plausible, but it's like a meta analysis. So, I mean, it could be BS anyway. So I don't, I don't know. I am stumped, Steve. So I'm going with the, 
the milk thing too. I'm just gonna follow the crowd. It's gonna follow the herd. I'm, oh, oh, uh, oh, God! Because it's milk, and they're cows. Yeah, Wait. and cows <laughs> travel in groups called herds, and that's why that was funny. Thanks for explaining that, uh, <laughs> Evan. Yeah, I'm gonna go with our. Four collective guts and say that oh. cow and milk. See, that's, See that? That's uh-huh. funny because cows have multiple stomachs. <laughs> Rebecca, I love you. Just you just made me regurgitate <laughs> yeah. in my mouth and eat it again. Chewing your is cut. That, is that some type of fetish I've never heard about? <laughs> all right. So you guys are all in agreement that the 20% from the chocolate is just yeah, out, out of the question. All right. Well, let's start with number two. New study reveals that animals that hibernate or burrow are less likely to go extinct, and that one is science. Yeah, of course. This is a study published in the American Naturalist looking at uh, mammals, and they found that those that sleep or hide, that hibernate or that burrow... But, like just uh, flat-out hide? that By burrowing in the ground, underneath the ground. Okay. That they right. are... That there are Percentage-wise, are fewer of them on the endangered species list, and they seem to be less at risk of going extinct. Now, the thinking is that perhaps because of this behavior, they are better able to uh, adapt to or weather changes in the climate uh, or changes in their environment. Right. Okay. So if we were to start living in deeper mine shafts, maybe we would have less yeah. likely chance of going extinct. Hmm. Hmm. Mine shafts. <laughs> we, <laughs> I know exactly where you're going that was, with that. <laughs> I put the golf ball on the tee, folks. Go ahead. <laughs> we could, uh, we'd have to keep some animals down there, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and what will happen to those animals, Steve? Those animals could be raised on slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's funny. I had way too many. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, let's go on to number... Three, a recently published review of research suggests that technology has caused a decrease in critical thinking and analysis skills, and that one Uh-oh. is science. Of course. Uh. Now, you have I say to. it's BS science, but yeah. Well, right. you know, here, here's the thing. Here's the rub. They're not saying it's causing an overall decrease in intelligence, and in fact, yeah. IQs have been steadily raising have been steadily rising by three points per decade or since we've been measuring them over the last 50 or 60 years. Wow. But they distinguish in this study, which is published in the journal Science, which is a rather prestigious journal, yeah. that... Oh, whatever. Yeah. That video intelligence... Killed a radio star? Video skills... I wasn't going to say it. And, and multitasking skills are improving. And how about bow hunting skills? Or nunchuck skills? Yeah. <laughs> but... Critical thinking and analysis skills are decreasing, and here's why. The le- fewer people are reading, and people are generally reading less. They we're spending more of our time consuming information and media from video sources and less time reading. Reading has certain advantages. When you're reading, you are uh, more focused. You're doing one task, so you're not multitasking, and it requires more... Uh, imagination. You have to imagine what you're reading, and ana- it takes more time for in-depth analysis of, of the information, and you absorb more of the information that you're getting. Uh, but with video, you can be 
processing multiple things at once, but it's more superficial and you, you're not paying as deep attention to the information. And also, it doesn't, it's more passive. It's also in real time so that you, don't have, you can't take it at your own pace and reflect upon what you're consuming. You basically have to keep up with the real-time information that's being streamed to you. So there are advantages and disadvantages to both types of, of learning or of media. And you know, what the authors are advocating is that we, uh, in the classroom, for example, and, and in you know, raising children, that we don't just switch entirely over to, to video media or passive media, that, we, that it's important to keep reading skills and try to get children to read more for pleasure, which is on the, on the decline, unfortunately, because it, there are certain intellectual skills that are developed much more by reading than by passively watching video. Bullshit. <laughs> <coughs> you don't buy that? <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I actually Which kidding. means that, number one, researchers find that adding small amounts of chocolate to a cow's feed increases their milk production by as much as 20% is completely bogus fiction. Of course. You're so full of bull. It is bull. It is bull but it's based because on bulls something. are like boy cows. It is based upon something. Actually, I thought that the, <laughs> at the claim made in the study that inspired this was actually even more stupid than that. But and, and I, all, I decided not to use it as a real item, although it would have been funny, because I just didn't buy it. Uh, but this was a, a study saying that cows that are given a specific name by their farmers produce more milk. Yeah. Oh, that is... Uh, I totally buy that. Now, there, here's I'm, I'm the dead sli- serious. confirmation and, and, bias. There, there's a sliver of legitimacy to it in that, or of, of plausibility in that cows that are treated better overall yes. are happier, are less stressed, and therefore they're going to be more efficient and they're going to be make more milk. And that, <laughs> exactly. That, yeah, and so, that, that's totally true. And I told you earlier I grew up around Hicks. I wasn't kidding. I grew up around a lot of farms, and uh, uh-huh. yeah, the like the 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 best producing cows were on the farms where they were like treated like pets, basically. Yeah, the what this study is just correlated with a survey farmers that named their cows and their milk production. They found that those farmers who named their cows, the, the cows produced something like five hundred and fifty pints of extra milk a year. The reason why I didn't use it is because it, it's really just a, it's a survey and it's correlational. It doesn't really delve into the causation because you could say that you – know, and they kind of focused on the naming. But I don't think giving a cow a name necessarily is what's making them less stressful or produce more milk. It could just be that <laughs> farmers that name their cows and who know their cows well enough to call them by their individual name probably treat them better in a lot of other ways too. Right. And, and this what study are you getting did, at? Yeah, it didn't <laughs> control for all of those other factors. So it, it's this is there's so much noise and so many variables in this kind of study. I don't think you can isolate out the naming as an important factor, which is why I didn't. I chose not to use it as a as a real news item for this week. But good morning, um, Stakey. How you doing? <laughs> T-bone. Hey, ribeye. What's up? <laughs> You know we're going to get letters. Milk cows are not slaughtered for meat. Slaughtered? going to happen. What, what, what about when they stop producing milk? No, they're they just don't, killed. They turn them into suitcases then. Oh, okay. Glue factory. Glue factory? <laughs> I think that's horses. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Oh, wait, that's jello. That's jello. Yeah. yeah. No, right. come on. It's ketchup, I think. Ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. 
<laughs> Soylent grain is made of people. <laughs> is mercury in cow's milk because of the corn syrup? What? Okay, I'm well. confused. Yeah, let's, let's move Excellent. on now. Where's the jizz come into this? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about jizz again. <laughs> the point is, the point is, we were all successful. Yes, that's the bottom. That is a, line. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah Steve, you, you blew it this week, man. Yeah, I think the twenty percent was probably too high. I mean, I did say as much as. So yeah, was yeah. It, we yeah. don't hear the as much as. All you see yeah. here is the twenty percent. Yeah. I should have toned it down a little bit, but I had to make it enough, you know. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Who's that noisy? Who's that noisy? Yes. Who's that noisy? Evan. I love it. So okay. let's let's recap last okay. week's Who's That Noisy? Yeah, let's hear All it. All right. And for those of you, the five of you who missed it from last week, <laughs> here it is. And what is that noise? Yeah. So Maybe what that who? noise is, is the sound of radio waves that are reflected off of a falling meteor. Ah, as it's wow, entering cool. the atmosphere, isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, that is awesome. And what's even more incredible is that somebody guessed that and got it exactly correct. So, who was? Yes, it? Phil, our friend Phil from State College, Pennsylvania, emailed. Phil, you are a crazy mofo. So he either found the exact website I found to get the noise from. That's what it sounded like. Stalking you. <laughs> Oh, he's looking over my shoulder <laughs> with a hidden camera while I'm... <laughs> but for full disclosure, though, I did some uh, noise removal on that file before I posted it up because there was a lot of static, which Big very bang. cleanly separated out from the tone in the background. So whatever you downloaded, however, from the internet had a lot of static on it, which I got yeah, rid well. of. Anyway, that was cool. That was a cool item, Evan. Yeah. Well done, Phil. Congratulations. Now... Now this week's Who's That Noisy? Now for this week's. Let's listen to Who's That Noisy? Okay. I was interested in theoretical physics, explaining atoms, vibrations. That's it. That's all you hey. get. That's all you get. I can you name got. that scientist in 20 notes. <laughs> 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 just because he's interested in theoretical physics doesn't necessarily make him a scientist. I love so. that accent. What about the German accent, though? Come on. <laughs> or is it Austrian or something? Well, people are going to have to figure it out. So give me your guesses, and good luck, everyone. Okay. okay. Thanks, Evan. You're welcome. Jay, give us a quote, baby. Yeah. Oddly enough, a listener sent me in a quote that has to do with cows. So I'm going to read that quote. What are the so chances? of a cow. Um, Our listenership in India is going to skyrocket this week. There's no way this is just a coincidence. So this is a quote by Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson was... In Snakes on a Plane. He was an English author. He was a journalist. And a Jedi. Uh, He was a poet and an essayist and a moralist and a novelist and a literary critic and a biographer and a lexicographer, which is a person that writes the dictionary. I hear he's a Pisces also. What was his day job? Oh, he milked cows. (laughs) (laughs) Also, he was a farmer. And he said, Truth, sir, is a cow that will yield such people no more milk, and so they are gone to milk the bull. Samuel Johnson! And that was sent in by Peter. Thanks. He wanted me to read that in an English accent, but I'm not doing it because I'm boycotting that for a little while. You're boycotting the English accent for a while? Yeah. Too much Too much guff. I can't have my fun. People are upset about it, so I'm not doing it. 
Aww. Yeah. Uh, we were given it. the green light. We had a lot of Aussies and, and uh, Brits email us and say that they love our accent. And and actually, Jay, while I was in London, I got a lot of people saying to me that they loved your accent. What? No, come on, really. No, I swear to God. They were like coming up to me. <laughs> Never mind then. And off he goes. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah. That was a short boycott. Uh, All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was like a, take it was like a hunger strike lasting between breakfast and lunch. And. Und. Und. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problem.